Welcome back to the second season of the RSM River Mechanics Podcast, a four-episode mini-season on reservoir sediment processes and management. At the end of last season, I asked for guest recommendations, practitioners in these fields that you would like me to talk to. And today's guest was one of the most requested. Dr. George Annandale is one of the most recognizable names surrounding reservoir sedimentation and is something of an ambassador for the future of our global water supply which is more connected than I realized before I got into his literature to reservoir sediment management. His book, Quenching the Thirst, includes a global assessment of water supply trajectories and some pretty shocking trends with unsettling implications about the future of freshwater availability and how reservoir sediment processes are already impacting that future. But Dr. Andale doesn't just sound the warning about bleak trends. His work focuses on actionable reservoir sediment management practices that can mitigate reservoir storage loss. In addition to private work on reservoir sediment problems around the world, he's also worked for the World Bank on several reservoir sediment management studies at various scales and helped develop the ResCon software, a screening-level tool that helps decision-makers sift the broad menu of sediment management practices to figure out which ones are worth investigating at their reservoirs and which are non-starters. I thought this made a perfect intro to this series because George and I talked about a lot of important contextual ideas surrounding reservoir sedimentation that sets up the technical detail in the following episodes. We talked about the motivation and even the ethics of reservoir sediment management and unpack some of the economic models that got us where we are and talk about how some countries and decision makers are revisiting those models to realign incentives. We talk a little bit about ResCon and just introduce the different methodologies available to manage sediment at a reservoir and extend the life of a dam, methods that we'll delve into in more detail in following episodes. So I'm thrilled to kick off this second reservoir-centric mini-season of the RSM River Mechanics podcast with a conversation with Dr. George Andale. George Andale, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Stan. I'm glad to be here. You grew up in South Africa, and I suspected that that might affect the kinds of projects that you're interested in and how you approach water resources. Is there a biographical connection to where you came from and the kind of work you do? Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, the thing is, you know, I grew up in South Africa, and it's common in South Africa to have droughts of five to seven years, and then you have a wet period again. And, you know, that obviously affects you. So since I can remember, there's always been water restrictions. As I grew up a little older, then the issue that we're losing storage became an issue of sedimentation. So that since a kid, that's always been in the back of my mind. A reservoir sedimentation. Currently, I'm living here in Arizona, and I feel really at home and very happy. And it's really a sort of a South African climate. The, the parts of where my grandparents had their farm, which was sort of semi-desert, and it was always problems with the rain, and that you have to have dams. And the other thing in South Africa is that uh, groundwater resources is very scarce. So water supply really comes from surface water dams. So in your book, Quenching the Thirst, you start out with the idea that sustainable development is a phrase that lots of people use to describe lots of different things, but maybe that phrase deserves some precision. So what is sustainable development? What I try to do is to distinguish between the term sustainability, which is used generally and has got many meanings for many people. And then there is sustainable development. And that is really what we as engineers do is sustainable development. That's what we should aim at. And sustainable development is is defined in the Brundtland Report in a very succinct manner. And it says that sustainable development seeks to meet the needs and aspirations of the present without compromising 
the ability to meet those in the future. And so I think I've been familiar with your work for about 10 years. And the phrase that you use that I think has become the biggest part of not only my lexicon, but my worldview, is this idea of intergenerational equity. What is that and how does that have to do with sustainable development? Well, intergenerational equity is really to make sure that in the way that we use our resources, that we don't harm future generations in the sense that we use them in a non-renewable manner. Because you have, you know, renewable resources and you have non-renewable resources. So that is really the issue that we make our decisions and design our projects in a way that future generations can still benefit. For example, I mean, a simple one that always comes up. If you have a dam in a reservoir and it completely fills with sediment over 30 years or 50 years, at the end, the generation that needs to take care of that decommissioning hasn't benefited from this at all. So the whole idea is to not let that happen. So if you, for example, have a dam in a reservoir that you cannot do anything about, but it's going to silt up, then, for example, you can create a, a sinking fund and you put money in a fund so there's enough money at the end of the life so that somebody can decommission that reservoir. And that is not really a new idea because that's used in mining. I mean, if you develop a mine, you must put money aside to decommission the mine right from the beginning. So that the generation that is benefiting is also paying the tail end cost. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly it. The problem is with the current way that we assess projects. And, and I know that is sort of standard in, in U.S. government and, and World Bank also use those techniques, is that we use interest rates that are so high that if you discount everything in the future, after about 30 years, whatever happens after that is, doesn't matter. So that doesn't create intergenerational equity. And there are techniques, you know, like the British government and the French government use it to really look at what's going to happen in the future and those benefits and the, the cost that you also account for that in your assessment. I mean, economics is, is really a philosophy, okay? And it's got some math to make it a science, okay? <laughs> but mostly if you talk to the economists, they say, well, you know, the, the next generation is going to be much wealthier and they yeah. can do this. No, it's not going to happen anymore, yeah. okay? You have to look broader mm-hmm. than that. And I think there is a path. I know there's economists in the World Bank also that's starting to look at this and say, well, you know, we may have to look further into the future. Because a lot of the facilities, I mean, we currently, a lot of people live to 100 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like it's, it's far out in the future. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and I think really if you look at it, you know, currently, uh, if you look at, at the dams we've built in the past from, say, 1900, and we look at the net storage after sedimentation has yeah. been taken off, we are really on a, on a declining road. So we have not benefited the future generations, which are us now. I want to just pause on one of the things you just said, because I think this is one of the most astounding findings in your book. It seems to me that, especially outside of you know, Europe and North America, we're building a lot of new dams. That means we have a lot more new reservoir storage. What are the actual trends in reservoir storage in the world? Yeah, you know, since I wrote the book, I, I got some more data from from uh, I called and up to 2022, actually. And what happens is, you know, the internationally, the trend of construction continues. You know, if you if you look at the trend of adding storage space mm-hmm. over time, it's keeps on increasing. Okay. 
But then, if you account for reservoir sedimentation, what we find is that now we are losing more storage space than what we're adding. So there's really a negative trend in the amount of storage that's available. And then the second thing, if you look at storage per capita, it's even worse. Because it, it peaked in the 1980s, and then it went down. So right now, we're about where we were in the 1950s. And it's, it's not moving forward. And in the United States, it's even worse because we're not building dams. And the decline in the net storage space is more significant than what it is internationally. And uh, also the same thing with, uh, you know, with, uh, storage space per capita, the same thing. It goes down to 1950s where we are now. You know, it, it's not a, a good thing because, you know, as I uh, try to explain in my book, is that we need to use renewable resources to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. okay? And if you look at the most renewable freshwater source, it's rivers. Mm -hmm. So... If we want to use rivers, we have to build dams to make a reliable supply, and we have to manage those storage spaces. This is one of the big arguments of your book. Let's pause on it just a little bit. There are other places we could get water. The other big one that you deal with, a place where we get a lot of our water from, is groundwater. Yeah. Why is surface water the future, and why does that mean more reservoir storage? Yeah, yeah. You know, we need to take a step back and say, okay, you know, we have... Uh, renewable resources and non-renewable resources. Yeah. Yeah, so those are the two. If you look at groundwater as such, and you look just at the fresh groundwater, for a resource to be renewable, the rate of replenishment must be greater than the rate of usage. You must be replenished more than what you use it. I'm not an economist, but I can do that math. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at groundwater... You know, if you were able to, all the fresh groundwater on Earth, if you were able to remove it in an instant, it'll take 1,400 years for it to re recover to where it is now. 1,400 years. 1,400 years, okay. And on the other side, if you look at river water, if you remove all the river water on Earth in an instant, it's back in about two weeks. So... For river water, the replenishment rate is much closer to what we use it at a, mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And if you look at groundwater, 1,400 years is so far off, you cannot classify that as a renewable resource mm -hmm. in that sense. Uh, McGill University and, and University of Woodcraft, uh, they've done a joint research project looking at the groundwater usage. And globally, we are using three and a half times more groundwater than what's replenished annually. Mm. Here in the um, Ogallala Aquifer, it's seven times more. The uh, valley in, in, uh, in California is, is just the same level. And then if you look at another place where we are getting a lot of our vegetables and uh, produce from here in the United States is, is northwest uh, Mexico. They're using 27 times more water, groundwater than it's replenished. So that is not, that's not a sustainable way to go. You know? On the other side, if you have these river water... Um, and obviously the issue is that it's not, it doesn't flow constantly, rivers right. doesn't flow constantly, so you may need to build dams to store the water. Uh, you know, you catch water in times of floods and you store it for times when, when it's dry that you can, can release it. So your argument in the book is we are essentially mining groundwater. Yes. And yeah. into the future, we're going to run out of that resource. It'll, we'll have to replace it. But then there are two amplifying factors. One, we have to replace it at a higher population, at a higher use rate. And there's the 
complicating factor of climate change and the covariance that comes with that. Yeah. If we look at uh, using river water, obviously, first we need to look at reliability, as I just said. So we build dams to, to store water that we can supply it in a reliable manner. But the problem is that, as you know, is that reservoir sedimentation diminishes storage. Yeah. And as it diminishes storage, it reduces the reliability that we can provide it with. But the other problem that we are entering now is this whole issue of climate change. And with climate change, everybody is, uh, and I think if I see the scientific community, is in agreement that hydrologic variability is going to increase. So the issue with variability is that if, he, if variability increases, it means that the, the length of droughts is going to increase. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd said in South Africa, I grew up in an area with droughts of five to seven years. And most of Africa is like that. And the reason is that they don't have mountains with snow uh, that, that can, you know, it's all, all rain-fed. Uh, and, and in areas here, like where we have snow, you can, you know, the, the flow is, is less variable. But as climate change comes in and snow starts to disappear, and you still have this increased variability on rainfall, you can have increased variability on your river flow, and you can have longer droughts occurring. So we're mining groundwater in a way that's non-sustainable. We've got more population, and more variability means potentially longer droughts and a higher need to buffer that with storage. That's correct. But we're not actually adding storage faster than we're losing it, which brings us to reservoir sedimentation. Can you just give us the simplest primer on why do reservoirs fill with sediment? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, even people that are not uh, engineers or technicians, they would often look at the river and it's it's very dirty. Mm -hmm. So that's sediment being transported by the river. And then as the river flows into a reservoir, the water slows down and it cannot carry that sediment anymore, so it settles out in the reservoir. And the space that the sediment takes up replaces the space that you can use for water storage. So that is really uh, the, the, big, the big issue. You know. I feel like this is the one thing that I do that I can explain to people at a like, very boring cocktail party, and they actually understand. <laughs> um, but reservoir sedimentation, it didn't surprise anyone. right? When we no. built these dams... We actually knew that this was going to happen. In fact, the engineers that designed the the dams with very thin information and analysis methods often came very close to predicting how much sediment would fill these reservoirs. It didn't seem to be a concern. Why does it seem to be that people all of a sudden are caring about this? Well, let us first start. I think there's a few people caring about this. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, that's one of my big peeves, and I, I work on a, still work on a number of World Bank projects as, on panels of experts, interact with design engineers. The thing is that there is a design paradigm that developed in the 50s, 60s, and people knew that reservoirs were filling with sediment, but they said, okay, that is, we can't do anything about it, just we keep on building dams, and they fill with sediment and build another one. The problem is that that design paradigm is still present today. Yeah. It has not changed. There are a, a number of people that are concerned about what's happening to our water resources in terms of storage, but it hasn't sunk in to the design engineers. What is this design paradigm that you're talking about? Well, the design paradigm is really people use this concept of a design life. 
And, I mean, it's a good concept to use for roads and other stuff. I mean, a road, just think of it. You can design for a design life of 15 years. After 15 years, you repave it. And essentially, you have a sustainable resource. You, you, you're right. developing it sustainably. Yep. You come back every 15 years and you put up the cones and you slow down traffic, but you haven't lost the resource yeah. at all. And it can be used for many generations. Yeah. I mean, just the highway system in the U.S. is a typical example of that. But the thing is, with big projects like dams, if your reservoir is filled with sediment, you can't do anything about it. I mean, the cost of removing that sediment once it's filled is hundreds of times more than the, what the dam cost to build originally. So this whole concept of a design life, because I'm working on Rogan Dam at the moment in Tajikistan, and we're struggling with that right now, because at first when I got there, the World Bank said, oh, this is a 100-year design life. Now, this is going to be the biggest dam in the world, okay, the highest dam in the world. 100 years, it's not good enough. No. So you have to get past that concept, and you have to get to a life cycle kind of concept where you can continuously work on this facility and you make it last forever. That's the yeah. ideal. I mean, it's not always possible, but you want to make it last much longer. Now, just to give you an example, on, I mean, Rogan, is, I could say it's going to be the highest dam in the world once it's done. And it's got a huge reservoir. And the only way that you can manage sediment in that to extend the life of the facility is to vent density currents, because there are density currents, we to, know that. To vent density to currents? To vent, yeah, yeah, we know it's there. And I just, you know, this is RESCON, and I did yeah. a quick assessment. And you can increase the, this life another 50 or 60 years by just doing that. You know, then obviously in that case, you have to, at some time it's going to salt up. It, it, but if you can extend it, long enough, multiple generations can use it. What did you do for the World Bank and how did that affect the way that you thought about projects? When we moved here from South Africa to the United States in 91, I always uh, tried to get into the World Bank kind of projects. And then eventually in 2001, I made a presentation on reservoir sedimentation and reservoir sedimentation management uh, to the World Bank. And it so happened that uh, Lisandro Palmieri just joined the bank at that time as the dam safety engineer. And he was obviously also looking for something to do, I guess, and he is interested in sediment management. And then there was a Professor Shah, University of Connecticut, that was just doing a sabbatical there. And then he went back and we decided to start off with this. So what happened is we are working and developed this uh, uh, reservoir RESCON program, reservoir conservation software. And that time, in 2003, when we finished it, it was sort of just a spreadsheet and that's been around for a long time. I think that sort of set off my path at the mm. World Bank. And uh, I've done a number of other projects for them, you know, in for example, in Nepal and, and India, mm -hmm. uh, did a three-week tour there to look at sedimentation of those uh, reservoirs. Uh, but then recently, uh, about three years ago, the uh, Austrian government uh, funded uh, a project, uh, a much larger project. Uh, they funded about $2 million, where we were looking at uh, ways to advance reservoir sedimentation management and to enhance the the health of rivers. Mm. And so that, in, amongst other things, it included studies on the Niger, the Danube, and the Mekong River. Uh, and then uh, what was also, there came a book out of it, uh, Gregory Morris and myself and Pravin Karki. And then uh, I think a, a number, a thing that was good 
that was developed was the uh, an advanced version of the RESCON program. And it's been released recently. And what that allows you to do is to do a pre-feasibility level assessment of the potential to make do reservoir sedimentation management on a new dam or existing dams or for policy on a, on a whole group of dams okay. you know, for, for a country or whatever, yeah. how you want to prioritize things. It's not, it's not a detailed hydrodynamic model. It's a, it's a screening level tool that lets you look at a lot of options fast. Oh yeah, no, that, yeah. that's the whole idea. Yeah. It's really, I mean, we use back of the envelope techniques to right. do things. And so what you do is you would, um, uh, you know, first just put in the data for the reservoir and it will screen all the reservoir sedimentation management techniques at, at a high level uh, and say, so, well, these are potentially feasible, potentially not. And then we do an economic analysis on that, which is very important uh, in this case. Um, you know, we uh, introduce new methods for, for economic analysis, which is not normally used. And uh, then it does also does a very preliminary uh, climate change assessment oh, and helps you to identify the optimal solution based on the uncertainties associated with climate change. But like I say, it's a very high level and it's just the first cut. Yeah. Okay, so it's hard to get your head around what is the comparable action to repaving a road, even if you wanted to, even if you set it up from the beginning. But that's a lot of kind of what you're famous for and what you cover in your book. There actually are ways that you can build or retrofit reservoirs in order to get them in this life cycle paradigm and extend their design life essentially indefinitely or much longer. And so you broke it down into three basic categories. You can keep the sediment on the land, right? But that's very distributed and takes a lot of work and culture change. You can pass the sediment through the reservoir so it never deposits. It just, just keep it suspended as it's going through. And then once it does deposit, you can remove it. And you're best known for those latter two. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the options um, for either passing the sediment through the reservoir or removing it once it's there? Okay, you know, I think the, you know, that is uh, a good uh, categorization. The, the thing is, you know, one is to, to try and pass the sediment through the reservoir or uh, alongside it. So uh, a way to, there are two ways you can do it, pass it through the reservoir. The one is that you can you do what is called sluicing. So what, what you, when you implement that is when a, when a flood season starts. The flood comes in and you lower the, the water surface elevation in the reservoir so you can keep the flow velocities high mm-hmm. and you try and pass as much sediment through that as possible. Okay, that, that's one way. Another way is in certain cases, like I said in, in the case of Rogan, the, the, the character of the sediment is such that density currents form. Okay, I, I knew we were going to come back to this, so I was going to ask you to define that now. Okay. What, what is a density current and how is it different than the other thing you described? So a density current, you know, if you have a lot of very fine material, silt and clay, and the river transports a lot of that, that water, because of the, uh, of the silt and clay that it contains, is, is denser than the water in the reservoir, which is clear. So if this river flows into the reservoir, the, because it's denser, it goes along the bottom of the reservoir and it forms uh, what is called a density current. Uh, sometimes I, I flew over Lake Mead once and you can actually see it, the Colorado River come in 
and it's cl suddenly clear. The reservoir is clear, so there's a density current going into Lake Mead. So the sediment plunges. And so the thing that's hard for me to get my head around is you're not transporting sediment by shear stress. It's no. not that the river is m moving the sediment by the force of the river. It's that this very dense sediment plume is actually going from a high-density to low-density gradient. And well, they call it a gravity current, right? It's being transported by its own weight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, essentially, you know, I would also view it perhaps as it's, you know, if a river flows normally, you have the atmosphere, it's also a fluid. Mm -hmm. And now if you have this clean water, it's like a fluid, but it's, it's less dense than the river and it goes underneath and it just carries on like gravity. Gravity oh, pu yeah. pulls it along. Yeah. That's cool to think about it as a three-layer fluid. You have the least dense, which is the air, then you yeah. have the middle dense, and then you have the most dense underneath it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So those, and those density currents travel very far. I mean, it, they sometimes, you know, like in case of Xialong Di, it's 100 kilometers. Oh, wow. That it travels. But so what you have is you have this density current containing the sediment, and then if you have a low-level outlet, at the dam, you try to get that current to go through the dam. And you can pass the density current without actually drawing down the dam. You just open it oh, enough yeah, yeah. to that, bring And that is a big benefit for hydropower, for example. You, you can just keep your reservoir level high and generate power, and the density current comes in, and you just open it, and you release it beneath. Okay, you're going to have possibly some uh, lowering, but it's not significant. And that is a, that's a big thing, yeah. What is the difference between sluicing and routing? Sluicing is a subset of routing. Okay. Right? So, yeah. so I would call uh, sluicing and dense current venting as routing. Uh, they are sub, okay. uh, sub, uh, so in the Venn diagram, routing is all of the methods that try to pass the sediment through um, before it deposits. Or, or past it. Or, yeah. or around, yeah. including bypass, um, sluicing, and density currents. That's right, okay. yeah. yeah. And that, that brings us into the, the other techniques, the bypass technique. Okay. Because that is, you know, like in... There's a lot of uh, reservoirs in Switzerland in the mountainous areas and also in Japan. What they do is they build a tunnel. And uh, when, the, when the high flows come in with sediment, they divert those flows into the tunnel and pass it around the reservoir and, and discharge it downstream of the dam. And, and, so, and, and that's, they're very successful at actually uh, uh, minimizing uh, sedimentation that way. There's a flood risk management project in Seward, Alaska, where the town is built on an alluvial fan. And so instead of trying to you know, keep the reservoir open, they're trying to keep the channel open. And they actually bypass the sediment down through another channel and form the fan and somewhere else. Oh, my else. God. I yeah. must go and look at that. My son lives in Alaska. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sweet. Right. Oh, yeah, okay. So... Density currents, bypass, and sluicing. And my question with sluicing is, you know, we've talked about hysteresis with a couple of guests on this podcast, and a lot of times you have more sediment on the rising limb of the hydrograph. Is, is that something you can take advantage of yes. with sluicing? Yes, yes. You know, and, and I think, you know, just uh, as an example uh, of a success of sluicing is, is Sinar, Sinar Dam in Sudan in the Nile River. So the Brits built it in, in 1925, they finished it, and they have 80, 80 uh, low-level gates in it. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even, like, picture that yeah, in my head. Yeah, yeah, So the, the rule there is, as the flood season starts, in the beginning, you, you sluice that, that flood through. So that's got most of the sediment in it. Okay. So you lower it, and you sluice it through the, through the reservoir. 
Now, and, and that's important because then you can use the back end of the hydrograph to fill the reservoir back. Exactly. Up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously, the Nile River, you know, you have these huge long flood seasons, mm -hmm. so that's ideal to, to do that. And, and they've been very successful with that. You know, since 1925 to 1981, the reservoir storage loss was 0.4% per year. It's almost nothing. How many years is that? That was, it's about 56 years, 0.4% uh, per year. Yeah. Okay? So right. it's most probably over the 50 years, it's about 20%. But then in 1981 to 85, uh, there was uh, one of the district engineers decided not to implement that, that management policy. And the reservoir filled up at 8% per year with yeah. sediment. Whoa. So over the five years, it you know, more than doubled the, the previous 50 years. Okay, so it went from 20% to 60%. Oh, wow. So, you know, it, it does work. Yeah. There's no question about it. So, uh, and then obviously then other techniques would be like off-channel storage. Okay. You know, uh, Gregory Morris designed some really successful projects like that where you have a reservoir off-stream and you divert the clean water into it. And if a sediment flow comes, you divert the flow past the reservoir. So that is, that is the, the routing techniques. So then we have this other class of techniques where we didn't manage to pass the sediment during the event. The sediment deposits, and we have to come in afterwards, um, move the sediment out. And what are some of the options there? Okay. Well, that is the most well-known option as far as hydraulic removal yeah. is concerned is flushing. Yes. Okay. So the difference between flushing and sluicing is in flushing, you implement during the dry season. Sluicing, you implement the beginning of the flood season, you lower the reservoir elevation and it, it, it flows through. But flushing, you essentially empty the reservoir. And what you aim to do is to create river-like conditions in the reservoir so that you can erode that sediment out and pass it downstream. That, that's really the difference, you know. And, and an example of that was Kabidem Dam in Switzerland. They flush that on an annual basis. I've been there. It, it's really a very successful operation. You know. And then, you know, other techniques, obviously dredging is what everybody knows. You know, so that is something that you can do on a regular basis. And, and Cogswell Dam, for example, another technique is to empty the reservoir, a flood control reservoir, for example, and you send a clump, a lot of earth-moving equipment in there, and you dig it out, and you put it in a landfill somewhere. Oh, wow. And then there are another technique, dredging technique, like this hydrosuction. Uh, there's an engineer in Norway that does a lot of that. His whole company is based on that. He seems to be pretty successful with that. And what the idea there is that you essentially use the siphon uh, power over a reservoir to, to use instead of a pump. So you That's just right. create the suction and you, you move the sediment out. The magic of the Bernoulli principle is that you, you, yeah. have, you have this head difference, this giant head difference. Yeah. You could potentially use that to, instead of you know, gasoline to yeah. power your, your dredging. Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So the first time I heard about this problem, um, and I think that probably if some people are listening and maybe it's the first time they've thought about this problem, it seems like there's a pretty easy answer. You open up the damn gates and you blow this, you let the water blow the sediment out of the, the flushing, <laughs> the flushing. It seems very straightforward. What percentage of dams does that work for? What kinds of dams does that work for? And what are the biggest obstacles to that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're referring to flushing. Flushing, yeah. yeah. 
The thing is, the flashing, you know, I think what uh, this is first start, there are two kinds of flashing. There's pressure flashing and then drawdown flashing. Now, pressure flashing is when the reservoir is, uh, water surface elevation is high and you open these gates and essentially what you do is you just scour a cone yeah. around your gate. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that's okay for, you know, if you have, for example, intake just above the gate just to keep that that's clear it. of sediment. But uh, for drawdown flashing, Experience has shown that it's really relatively small reservoirs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of work has been done by Professor Sumi in Japan, and he got all this data, and I, you know, I developed this one graph really mm-hmm. using his data. So flushing is really for relatively small reservoirs, relatively short, and then also it, it has to be a, have a linear shape, you yeah. know, not not the multiple legs and stuff like that. Well, if it's narrow, you can open the gates and essentially you'll clear the footprints of the gates in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But if, what happens if the if the reservoir is really wide? This is very wide. You're just going to create a channel through the yeah, sediment. The right. rest is going to sit there. So the, the sediment can deposit much more broadly than it can erode. Yes. So that is where Gabidan Dam is a good example. It's okay. a really a very narrow channel. Yeah. And they can uh, flush out all that sediment. But I think you've done some work here in, I think it is in, in Nebraska. Yeah, Spencer Dam. What I saw from the videos that you guys developed, it's essentially a channel that you, That's you, right. you, that you scour out within the sediment deposit. So they had to do it twice a year just to get enough head to you know, run, that, run yeah. that power plant. Yeah, yeah. So that you know, you need some special special features there, and that's actually where RESCON is quite nice as a preliminary yes. assessment, because we used work that was done by Wallingford, Dr. White. You know, he, yeah. he's retired now, but he's got some very empirical techniques that you can quickly assess if it, how successful you're going to be. Yeah. You know, so. This was my first experience with RESCON. Is I, w- I was in a workshop with you. The whole purpose of the workshop was to analyze the difference. Um, sedimentation management possibilities for Tuttle Reservoir. And I just thought, you know, it has low-level outlets. We should be flushing this thing. And I remember you brought up ResCon and said, well, let's see. And you typed in a few numbers and said, <laughs> you know, it's just too wide. We're, we'll yeah. only remove a very small percentage of this sediment. And it, was, yeah. it just was a very powerful tool. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. So in my experience, one of the obstacles to flushing is that because of this old design life approach to dam design, a lot of our reservoirs don't even have low-level outlets. Yes. You, like, you can't actually open the, the dam to bring it down to run a river. What's your experience with that internationally? Let me put it this way. There is, you know, there are requirements for dam safety purposes okay. to, to reduce the, the water level at a certain rate. But... What you find is if the dam becomes very high, gates that you can get off the shelf can take about 120 meter pressure. So that's not often not built in. So I see. I say internationally, most dams that I know of do not have low level outlets, you know, even if they are within the the limits of of gates. Okay. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to be something that design engineers uh, value uh, such, except for dam safety purposes. And low-level outlets would be useful for m- multiple of these tools. Yes, 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 yes. What are some of the recommendations that you tend to make for new dam to get them into this life cycle design paradigm? Changing minds is mm. difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this project we had with the World Bank, and I may be digressing a bit, but this is important. Because in a big way, I diverted myself from the technical stuff in the last several years, uh-huh. 
more towards policy. And I developed a policy document for the World Bank uh, with this last project. And then while we were doing that, I discovered that the University of Virginia has a PhD program in sustainability and cognitive psychology. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. right. We tried to get a contract going with them, but uh, money ran out before we could do that. Uh, I'll use now an example. We, we, I'm currently working with an engineer in Greece. Uh, he's a, a Dr. Eftemio. He, he finalized this new RESCON program. And we're working on a dam in Colombia. And Colombia is one of the few nations in the world or countries in the world that actually require dam owners to develop reservoir sedimentation. Oh, really? Product. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So we are working with them. And there is a low-level outlet on this particular facility, but that's not the most effective way to manage the sediment, oh, we found wow. out. You know. uh, this whole project that we're doing is we found that the combination of dredging and a bypass tunnel is the most effective. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's very, it's very uh, project specific. Yes. Yeah. Like I say, in the case of Rogan, it is density currency, only thing you can do. And, and we've seen that also in Newark Dam downstream of it. They are density currency, okay. you just have to vent them. You know. you know, what do I recommend? I try to always talk about this old story about uh, what we need to do as engineers. And actually, uh, recently, I gave a, a keynote at USSD last year to try and shame people into doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, what, what is the ethics around this? You know? And I refer back to the, the fundamental ethical principles of, of the American Society of Civil Engineers. Mm. You know? and, and I was actually, I think I proposed to USSD that we should actually develop ethical principles for the United States Society of Dams as well. Uh, there are four fundamental principles of ASCE. And the first one is to create a safe, resilient, and sustainable infrastructure. Number one, sustainable. Okay. <laughs> they don't talk about sustainable development, but I think that's what yeah, they mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, to, to, to treat all persons with respect. And then third one, to consider current and anticipated needs of society. So that's where the sustainability becomes sustainable development. And then lastly is to use our knowledge to enhance the quality of life Mm. of man on earth. So in essence, those ethical principles support and impress the importance of sustainable development. So if I try to convince engineers to look broader than what they're doing at the moment. We have a lot of uncertainty in designing dams. I mean, it's tremendous. And we've developed geological techniques and we do seismic analysis and we do various things to make sure that this dam stands up. But what we forget is that the dam's purpose is the reservoir, to keep the reservoir there. (laughs) (laughs) So I say in principle, there are only two failure modes in 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 a dam reservoir system. The one is the dam fails and you lose your reservoir. You cannot use it anymore. Uh-huh. Or the dam stands up and you fill your reservoir with sediment and you can't use it anymore. The whole facility That's is it. useless. Okay? So we need to, to think broader than just the dam and go to this whole concept of the system as a unit. Mm-hmm. It's a dam and a reservoir. Speaking of failure modes, one of the <laughs> things that I'm a little bit obsessed with is reviewing projects that haven't gone well. I think one of the best ways to, to kind of learn is by counterexample. And I suspect with the number of reservoir management studies that you look at, besides the you know 
primary failure mode of not considering it or this, this kind of design life design strategy, which is kind of itself a failure mode. What are some of the failure modes that you've seen in attempted reservoir sediment management? Or can you give us a couple of examples of places where this has been tried and hasn't worked very well? In Bhutan, there's a number that also tried it like with flushing. You know, mm-hmm. you can only have a certain amount of sediment removed. Yeah. I think that is most probably one failure mode, if I can call it that. Another one is like, for example, in Rosera's Dam, upstream of Senar Dam. It was built after Senar, only uh, probably in the 70s. And they provided sluicing gates, but it's a few. I mean, you know, I told you Senar has 80 of those, <laughs> eight zero. They have six. The six gates are here and the the hydropower intake is over over a year. So it's on the, it's the opposite side of the dam. Yeah. I mean, this plant sorted up so quickly. I think what it is is not really understanding what you are aiming at and not doing the necessary studies to ensure that it works well. I'll give you a... Uh, this is a good one. This is Natpayakri in India, and it's a huge project. I mean, I think the head is 700 meters. And the way that they try to manage sediment, this is now not to abrade the turbines, was to build huge uh, sedimentation ponds in the mountain. I mean, these are massive, massive. The first year when they commissioned it, within nine months, all those turbines were done. Oh, wow. And it was just essentially silt. But they have like 80% quartz in that, in that silt. Oh, so the residence time wasn't high enough to strip out the silt, but the silt was too high of quartz content. Yeah. So they, they, they got a lot of the sand out, but not the silt. And the silt had a very high quartz content, so it just screwed up the turbines completely. Oh, that's amazing. So the way they solved it was to redesign the turbines so that you have less wings and the flow pattern is, is more... Gentle, you know. Oh, so it's actually a mechanical engineering that solution. That was a mechanical engineering I, I, One of the things that I've enjoyed about this conversation so far is it really does illustrate your idea that um, reservoir sediment management solutions are very science-specific, and I would have never oh, thought yeah. of a mechanical yeah, engineering yeah. solution as part of that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, yeah. So one of the things that we run into a lot is, you know, our government has spent billions of dollars trying to keep sediment out of channels. And so there, there's... There's this, been the this sense in the United States for many years that sediment is a pollutant. We have TMDLs. And so the idea that some engineer is going to want to open the reservoir and send a bunch of sediment through, if you were to say that in a room with, say, some resource agencies, you get some interesting reactions. Yeah. Um, what's been your response to concerns about sending sediment pulses downstream and particularly environmental concerns? Well, the United States is nixing it right there. They don't want sediment in the rivers. And I think that's where Matt Condorf is also doing a lot of yes. work, and you yourself, is to try and educate people to say, you know, to keep this river healthy, you have to have sediment in it. Yes. Okay? Now, that is where Colombia is also a step ahead of us. Yes. Because they don't have these TMDLs. Every river is on its own. And like I say, this reservoir we're working on, the whole argument is, okay, we need to get enough sediment downstream to keep the river, uh, rivers uh, geomorphically happy. You know? yeah. And again, it's one of those mindset changes that, that is going to take years to, to, to change, you know, yeah. to, to get regulators to understand that sediment is not a pollutant. Yes. Unless it is, I mean, you get polluted sediment, right. but right. on average, it's not a polluted, polluting element. Yeah. You, know, you, you need it in your rivers. This podcast is a product of the Corps' Regional Sediment Management Program, 
And one of the big ideas of regional sediment management is to treat sediment as a resource. And that if you kind of hoard it upstream of the dam, there are infrastructure and environmental consequences to downstream communities, both human and non-human. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it also is one of Matt Connell's ideas is that he, he had some experiments where he takes sediment out of the reservoir and place it downstream of the dam, and when a flood comes, it just takes it down. Let's go to the Mekong then. That is the big concern in the Mekong River. Yes. Because all those dams, once they built, 95% of the sediment will be gone, the Mekong Delta is going to degrade, mm-hmm. and that is the rice bowl of, of Southeast Asia. Let's actually talk about the Mekong, because that is what I want to talk about next. So um, the Mekong Rivers, it's a system that you and I have both worked on. Um, I've been more upstream, but it's one of the big biodiversity hotspots yeah. in the world. And yes. there are a number of large and dozens and dozens of small Three, dams. 300, yeah, yeah, yeah. 300 dams that yeah. are planned to go in. This is, a, again, a place where Matt Condolph has done a lot of great yeah. work. But you were part of a team that got involved and did one of the most remarkable pieces of work I've seen with Sambor Dam. Can you just tell us the story of what was Sambor Dam going to be and what, and what was your proposal? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is an interesting story. The, the, the original Sambor Dam design was a, just a, a straight, long embankment, very high, with a f- covered water, I think it's like 100 kilometers upstream. And, and where was it? If you go in the Mekong River, the last proposed dam in the Mekong River is in Cambodia. Okay? So most of them are upstream in Laos and China, yeah. and but this is the downstream most. That is the most downstream, and if you built that, it was going to take out a lot of sediment. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what you do with sediment management upstream of the downstream yeah. most dam. That, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So what we did there was actually, it's interesting, if you look at that part of the river where Sambur Dam is from, in a, from an aerial point of view, it looks like a braided river. But then if you go into a boat and you go up there, you see it's, it's not alluvium. It is braids in rock. So what we then said is, okay, well, let's see if we can use this as a, uh, an advantage. And what we did is I designed a, a concrete dam with a lot of low-level gates. If you look uh, from the upstream to downstream on the right side, there's a big braid going out. And then the powerhouse was in a braid list next to it. And then there's another big braid that ran down at the bottom to the side. And what we had to do is two things. We had to pass through as much sediment as possible. Mm-hmm. And secondly, we had to pass fish. And this is important because there's many migratory fish. Oh, more than 300 species. I don't even know if they really know how many species there are. And, I mean, it's humongous. And a, an enormous amount of Cambodia's protein is fishing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that is the prime protein there. Yeah. 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 So what we did is then we have the, the new Sambor Dam in the one braid. We have a little, uh, another small braid here where we had the power station and then connected this large braid with a 300 meter wide channel mm. downstream. And that was intended for fish passage. So, I mean, it's like a natural fish pass. It's not, it's not a, a step thing or whatever. It's, it just so happened that the river on the left side is slightly higher than the braids on the, mm. on the right. So I could just do it naturally like that. So you had an interbranching channel with competent geology. Yeah. And you dedicated two of the channels to hydropower and one to sediment transport yeah. and fish That's passage. Right. And so in your book, you talk about how we used to cite dams starting with where can I put this dam to get maximum power? Yeah. 
but that maybe we should start with a different premise. Yes, yes. And that is that is the premise we, we use there because, I mean, the dam that was originally designed was to maximize power. This one could generate two-thirds of that power, and an economic analysis that we did, it was still economical. So you don't have to go to this maximum extent. You know? And that's the same. You get that all over. You know, It's like in Zambia also, in the Zambezi River, there's another dam they wish to build upstream of Kariba. It's called Patoka. And the same thing. They just try to maximize the energy. But there's a lot of reasons why I should lower the dam for tourists use upstream and stuff mm. like that. You know? So that, that, is, that is a problem. You, in terms of optimizing, you have to look wider than just the, the money. And that's where, you know, I think where this economic analysis, the financial analysis, the difference between those two becomes important because I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know. Okay, so I want to wade into that. I just have to tell you that I'm an economics fan, <laughs> but I feel like I'm going to have to ask you to re- define and repeat um, because I feel like this gets very, very ethereal. Like you said, it's it's philosophy with some numbers. Yeah. But Let's just start there. What's the difference between the finance and the economics of a, of a dam? So what you do is if you start a project, what you should do is you do an economic analysis. Mm-hmm. And economic analysis is about weighing value. I mean, you have, may have a, an old stingray out here, and it's very old, but because you value it more, it's it's more than what you know Someone else than what this it. price would be. Yeah. Okay, so the value is, is different to price. So in economic analysis, you look at value, and it's not just dollars; it is value of of the resource, but also value to the community, benefits for the community, this benefits to the community, uh, environmental benefits. So it's a completely a, a holistic view you look at. Mm. Now, when it comes to reservoir sedimentation management, often what you will happen is perhaps say you use sluicing or perhaps flushing and you have to empty the reservoir and fill it again, you're losing some benefit. And if you just look at it in the short term, then it is not, may not be economically viable. But if you look at the long term, what the benefits may be to future generations, then it can become economically viable. So the first thing is an economic analysis is that you look at value and not at prices. And secondly, you look at how you use your discount rate. Because Ah. all these economic analysis and finance techniques use a discount rate to discount value to the present so that you can compare things easily. But if you use an interest rate, say, of 10%, then in 30 years, whatever happens after that is not, not important. And that's why in economic analysis, we should use a declining discount rate. And as it goes more into the future, discount rate becomes smaller and smaller. So those values or be- benefits and costs way in the future is also accounted for here. So that is the economic analysis. I'm going to need you to help me understand this. Yeah, sure. Because the discount rate is difficult for me to grasp, but it is very deep in the economic analysis world. It comes down to, to how you value life. The theory is that I would rather have a dollar right now than have give it to me in five years' time. So it's, it's how you value time rate of, of, of right. stuff. Right, and so that difference between would I rather have a dollar now or in the future, is the discount of the future dollar. That's right. That's and right. when we build projects, when we think about future costs or benefits, we discount them 
with the same idea. Same idea, yeah. So we're saying is what we're saying is, and that's where we get into conflict with the concept of sustainable development. Mm -hmm. We say is that I'm developing this thing and I want the maximum benefit right now and I don't care about the future. That's essentially what it is. But if you change your, your analysis technique and you increase your discount rate as you go on, the, the diminishing discount rate, then you at least look at what happens to the future generations, to their cost and benefit, and is it worthwhile? Okay, so this seems to be related to the idea of renewable resources. And I know that when I sat in my fifth grade class, I was told there are renewable resources and non-renewable resources. And the non-renewable, they were like coal and gold and you know things you extract out of the ground. And the renewable resources are like wind and sun and water. We've already kind of deconstructed that a little bit, is that, well, surface water, certainly not groundwater, but even surface water, I guess the big question is reservoir storage. Is reservoir storage a renewable resource? Well, <laughs> that's, that's uh, one of my, another pet peeves. <laughs> uh, reservoir storage, in my view, has a dual nature. Okay. Okay. And its nature is decided upon by the designer and the operator of the dam and reservoir. If you design a dam that has the ability to manage sediments so that you can extend the life of this facility as long as possible, preferably in perpetuity, it's possible to do that, then you classify it as a renewable resource. Mm. But if you design a dam and a reservoir and you know it's going to fill with sediment, you're not doing anything about it, then you define it as a non-renewable resource. It is a decision, firstly, by the designer and the developer, and secondly, by the operator. What's the hoteling principle? Essentially, what hoteling says is that if we work with a non-renewable resource, then the value of that resource should increase with the discount rate. So in other words, if I discount it, it remains constant. That's the essence of it. Let's talk about gold. Let's, so if we're going to talk about reservoir storage as if it's a non-renewable resource, and um, we think about gold, if I take the gold out of the ground now, or if my grandchildren take the gold out of the ground, it should have the same value to each of those Individuals. Yeah, in, 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 at that time point, point, yes. point in time, yeah, yeah. I think actually it's a good example yeah. of gold because if you see how the price of gold That's keeps right. on increasing. That's right. Yeah. And as you made the case in your book, water is not you know, a constant value. It's it's actually going to be more scarce and more valuable. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Because it's going to be scarcer and because it's bigger demand, it's going to become more valuable. Well, George Anadel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my, absolutely my pleasure, Stan. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. I really appreciate George taking the time to introduce this series for us and to lay out the motivations and options for reservoir sediment management. Next week, we'll delve into those options in more detail. And frankly, I cannot think of a better guide to walk us through the options than next week's guest, Dr. Greg Morris. If you are in any way adjacent to reservoir sediment processes, you will not want to miss that conversation. These are informal conversations, and the views expressed do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, their partners, or the offices or centers of the guests or host. This project has been and continues to be funded by the Corps of Engineers Regional Sediment Management Program. Dave Perkey leads that program, and Tate McAlpin coordinates the Inland Contributors, which is where the reservoir initiatives live. Mike Loretto is back editing the second season and wrote our theme music. 
It's fun to be back. Thanks for listening.